Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. Well, good morning to the listeners. Good morning, Jenny. Morning. How are you feeling today? Well, I had my second COVID shot and I felt like shit for two days, but now I think I've come out of it. I think I'm back on track. I'm ready to go and helping to get those COVID vaccination numbers up, up, up. Yeah. I had my COVID shot last Thursday and my arm was sore for like six days. (laughs) It feels better now though, but I, I do still have some red marks on my arms. I'm hoping they'll go away. Yeah. It's no joke. It's no joke at all. Yeah, it was bonkers. I had like low level fever, full body aches, streaming runny nose. <laughs> it was delightful. And how's Tony doing? He was feeling pretty miserable as well. Yeah, he's back on track. He's can't can't keep a good man down. He's not still laying in bed. No. <laughs> no, he's up and at him. That's good. I'm so appreciative that we have the opportunity to get vaccinated and to get yeah. get our second dose. Absolutely. It feels really good. Absolutely. We are we are beyond fortunate. Yeah. We have a very special guest. I mean, all of our guests are special. Number one best guests. <laughs> We'd like to welcome our guest, Peter. Peter, can I get you to introduce yourself? Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me, by the way. I'm Peter Tagach. I'm located in Burnaby, and this is a good opportunity to acknowledge that uh, our office is located on the traditional territory of uh, Hankaminam and the Swamish nations. And yeah, thanks for having me. Really uh, appreciate it. This is my very first podcast ever, so Woo-hoo! please Ooh, uh, be patient with me, and uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. We were on a really tight ship around here, Peter. Really tight ship. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're delighted to have you. We're really excited about the topic today. And we're just, yeah, fortunate that we could pull you away from your your day job, your regular job to to join us on our podcast. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, we just basically finished. I finished one of the field surveys. So um, I have a little bit of time before jumping into the data crunching, data processing. That's awesome. Can you tell the listeners what it is that you do? By trade, I'm a, I'm a geophysicist from Hungary. I finished my university studies in Budapest in um, called an Ötvesloránd uh, University. I've been here in Canada for a little over a decade, uh, and I'm mostly on the field collecting data and then talking to experts in the different fields to find out what actually we are trying to find. So we're just looking at everything that's underneath, uh, below the surface, whether it's archaeological related or anything else. There is so many other things that actually lurking below that the list goes forever. Um, my favorite, to be honest, is archaeology just because of its importance, cultural importance, and human nature of the of the job itself. You're sure, um, sure you're not just saying that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually do like it. Uh, I did that uh, in, in Hungary for a few years as well, and I just love every aspect of it, to be honest. 
Nice. And this is a, a hot topic in the news right now with the findings of buried children from the residential schools. And I guess those findings have been through using GPR. Yes, uh, yes. GPR, probably everyone knows now that um, it is ground penetrating radar. Yeah, it has been used. I wasn't involved in any of the projects. I just want to uh, verify that before going further. As sad it is, I guess um, it's an important step, you know, to reveal the truth. Just so we're clear, the, the idea was not to like have a, a GPR specialist on to talk about that specifically, but what could be really good is to talk about GPR more generally, as well as just like generally how your discipline interacts with uh, Indigenous groups, for example. And in a more general nature, there's there's a lot of information about GPR in the news, and we thought it would be really helpful to talk about um, kind of like practical uses of GPR in archaeology, um, its limitations, some of the misconceptions about it in general. And as well, we're always wanting to promote disciplines engaging in, in early communication and obtaining consent from First Nations for any kind of land-based exercise. So I hope that we could kind of talk about those topics more generally. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. If we kind of back up as, a, you know, in your field, when do you usually get called in? Why would people call you to do work? Well, if you are talking about the archaeological uh, work, archaeological geophysical work that we do, yeah. it's, uh, it's usually, you know, someone calls up, hey, um, there's a big field here and um, we don't have time, right, Amanda? I guess uh, that was the case uh, in the last one too. We don't have time to do proper archaeological investigation, so geophysics comes into into the picture um, because it has an advantage of anything of over anything else is that it can cover a large area in a relatively short period of time. Everything is relative here, although the information that it can provide is a lot less limited. You have to, you know, take it with a grain of salt, I guess. It might be able to just give you the last push that you need to focus on certain areas. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, the other reasons that actually we, we get a lot of calls recently is to verify something, to verify a burial or potential burial with geophysical data sets. So instead of doing a proper archaeological investigation, Sometimes we are called either by an archaeological firm or the First Nations directly. They are asking us to verify something that's underground or they think it's underground for several reasons. Most of the time it's related to burial sites, um, existing uh, cemeteries. Most of the time I would say the area we are looking is relatively small. We are kind of focused and we give them our geophysical investigation and geophysical reports. Obviously, we, won't, we are not able to give them specific detailed results in terms of what's going on, you know, underground exactly. Right. And as you said, it can be used for burials, but it can also be used for other things that are not burials. And you also mentioned uh, how you had worked with us on a project. Um, and I didn't know, Amanda, did you want to maybe introduce that project and then maybe Peter could speak to that as an example of other things that can be found. Yeah, for sure. I uh, recently was contacted by one of the nations that we work with up here in the Northwest, and they were in a bit of a time crunch. They were hoping to build a new administration building that they had funding for that needed to be spent 
in a certain time frame. And they just got word that the funding was available and they, they only had a, a couple of months to, to put up this building. And so they contacted us and I then contacted Geoscan and I was introduced to Peter. I was in a bit of a panic because uh, we were asked to do archaeology and to help locate burials that were said to be on the property in unknown locations. <laughs> the elders in the community just knew that the burials were there. <clears throat> the site was a 19th century Indigenous village that unfortunately the people that were buried there, they had succumbed to the flu. And so the current residents of the village, the direct descendants of those ancestors who had passed away, they knew that the burials were there, but didn't know exactly where they were. And they were concerned by excavating and putting up this, this building that they would disturb them. So I contacted uh, Geoscan, was introduced to Peter. <laughs> Peter calmed me down and talked <laughs> me through the process. <laughs> and uh, it was a really uh, interesting experience for me. I haven't worked with ground penetrating radar or magnetometry surveys before. And so it's kind of a new aspect to, it's a more interesting and innovative way to do archaeology. And the results from Peter's survey were, were amazing. Peter, tell me about the survey you're doing. Conducting a magnetic radiometer survey. Basically, it measures the Earth's magnetic field at certain locations, and if there is anything that disturbs that magnetic field, should be able to pick it up. Anything underground or above ground. So, but generally speaking, we are measuring the Earth's magnetic field. We are taking notes of the surficial objects, and whatever not uh, cannot be correlated with surficial anomalies, we infer that it's from the subsurface. And the next step is going to be interpret that data set once we know what's coming from underground. Seems like a relatively simple exercise too, just walking back and forth over a grid pattern. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have a GPS. We use GPS assisted survey to get a little bit better accuracy and more freedom when we're doing the interpretation itself. But we are following a grid pattern. We are using 0.5 meter line spacing and approximately 20 centimeter station spacing. Station spacing means the sensor approximately every 20, 25 centimeter uh, registers one data point. Okay. Um, actually two because we are using a dual channel magnetometer. So this one just speeds up the data collection itself. So instead of walking up and down every half meter, I actually do it every one meter in okay. a pattern. It's more efficient. Yeah, it is more efficient and, <laughs> you know, a little bit less exercise, but... Is there anything that affects your instruments? Yes, anything that has some sort of ferromagnetic material in it. Mostly magnetite, hematite, typically iron steel, all kinds of metallic uh, compounds. So this beam over here? Oh yeah, we, we picked that one up. We <laughs> can pick up your camera as well, so I moved it actually once further back. Just okay. to put it a little bit further away. Obviously, whenever we see those ones underneath, they kind of envelope everything that's below. So that's why I went around at the beginning and picked up the big stuff. But okay. obviously, I can't pick up a, I don't know how many kilograms of uh, steel beam. But other than yeah. that, I try to move away metallic objects. Pr 
prior to the survey. And where are you going to survey next after you're done on this part? I'm going to do the same area using ground penetrating radar. That's the instrument that uses electromagnetic waves. It basically uh, transmits uh, electromagnetic signals into the ground. And if it sees some sort of a difference in the electrical properties, some of that energy will bounce back. The rest will keep going and will come back at another interface when it sees some sort of difference in the electrical properties. I'm gonna do the same grid with tighter light spacing, just because based on experience, magnetic surveys are good every half meter spacing. GPR for archaeological reasons. Archaeological surveys, we tend to squeeze them even like 0.3 meter light spacing. That's what I'm going to use. So it's gonna be slow but uh, it has way more data as well. Archaeological geophysics is basically using geophysical tool to try to see what's underground in the archaeological perspective, try to find context of different archaeological features. I guess seeing underground um, through a lens of sort of like an archaeologist except you know you need an archaeologist obviously to do interpret the data yeah it's basically just using geophysical tools to determine whether an area um, potentially has archaeological features that can be measured by geophysical tools that's the important thing so it's not a one-way street there might be still archaeological features underground and the geophysical tool may not be able to see it so how did you get interested in doing archaeological geophysics? I was actually working in Canada when uh, I moved back to Hungary. And a friend of mine who um, attended the same university, he was one year older than me, um, reached out to me if I wanted to work uh, with him doing archaeological geophysics in Hungary. And I was really hooked up right away. He uh, introduced me, to be honest, into archaeological geophysics in 2014, for the very first time. Um, I knew that it was used before, and I had a very few projects, but not regularly. I knew it was a thing, and I knew that it was happening, and I did a few projects, um, even at my last year of university in 2008, but I, I didn't do it for a, for a few years. What's the most interesting project that you've worked on? One of yours probably, it, it has to be on the top because it was completely unexpected. When we surveyed in Europe, you know, you can find different things. One of the projects that is very close to me was uh, locating Roman villas because um, they are just cool to look at, to be honest. In, in BC, I think the one that we did together recently, uh, because it was uh, so unexpected, I like unexpected yeah. things happening because we see what no one else can see. So what? What can't you like it? It's just, it's there. It's on the data if we can see it. I love that our project ranks up there with Roman villas. <laughs> yeah, again, different archaeological features, but uh, we worked on, on a few and um, I, I just remember uh, them. You know, you can see the rooms and um, you kind of can imagine yourself basically when you're walking on the field and you oh my God, yeah, this, this, this was here. And uh, um, if you think about it from a geological perspective it wasn't a long time ago a few thousand years so yeah i mean i know it's a lot of generations but in a sense it wasn't a long time ago we see not just into the ground but 
basically we see back in time, you probably feel the same thing every time when you go for a, to, a, to an investigation that you find you know, an artifacts and you kind of feel the same connection between you and the past. Absolutely. It's like, it's almost like you're feeling the energy um, of the people that were there before. And just cool stories, you know, stitched together, creating this story that we are still carrying. So pretty exciting that we get to do this work. So the project comprised basically two plus one areas, generally speaking, um, uh, flat locations with not a lot of superficial features at first, um, although there's a lot that revealed later using uh, photogrammetry. And actually you can see a few features like depressions and whatnot on the ground. We use ground penetrating radar or GPR. We use the magnetic radiometer, usually just say magnetometer because that's just shorter. I think we didn't use electromagnetic in this case, but sometimes we do collect electromagnetic conductivity as well. But our main two methods we are using is either GPR or magnetometry. We surveyed roughly 70 by 30 meter area and another that's about 30 by 30, 30 by 40 meter location. The two locations were completely different in, in many ways. So first of all, uh, when we see a location based on the surroundings, we kind of have an idea which method will be useful, which one may not be useful. In this case, one of the location was really surrounded by existing infrastructure, building, administration building, and all that. So we knew that it was going to be in quotation marks, pollution, um, lots of metallic objects, lots of ferromagnetic objects. So we knew that the magnetometer wouldn't give the best results in that environment. We still collect the data because we are interested to see actually how disturbed, how polluted that location is. And as expected, it was very disturbed for the magnetometer, but the GPR revealed a lot of different disturbances as well. Now, the other location, that was a little bit, if I'm not mistaken, south of the original area. Mm-hmm. It was a lot less polluted. There was very quiet compared to the first one. So the magnetometer actually revealed a few very, very interesting objects, including a few potential burials. But burials are very, very difficult archaeological features to pinpoint, to be honest. Uh, it was a great project. Magnetometer worked well in one of the locations, uh, a little bit less on the other one. Ground penetrating radar gave a few additional information on both sides. Uh, but altogether, when we actually put the two data sets together, that's when the real magic uh, revealed. The magic happens. Yeah. And you guys did an aerial survey as well with a drone. And that I found that was really helpful too on the, the images that you provided with the report. Yes, we always do that uh, when we are allowed to. Obviously, um, it's subject to uh, local laws and the restricted airspace and all that. So we have to do our research before we do that. But if we are allowed to fly our little drone, uh, we do a photogrammetic survey. So at the end of the day, besides giving the client um, a nice high-resolution aerial imagery, we can also produce a, a digital elevation model of the area, which can reveal a lot more than one might expect. In this case, I think it revealed a lot of interesting mounds, actually, and depressions that you may not be able to see 
using your own eyes. So that was kind of interesting as well. They produce a heat map. So basically they produce a gray scale or a rainbow scale. The scale and, and the palette doesn't really matter. It creates like an amplitude map. You're gonna see like a heat map with lots of black in, in our case, because that's what we use, but you can see like blue and red or black and white, um, you know, uh, weird shapes if there is any anomaly, magnetic anomaly uh, showing up. Sometimes they are just one color, sometimes they are two colors. In, in case of rainbow, they could be obviously even more. It depends on the effect of the um, Earth's magnetic field. It's essentially, it's a heat map. And on the heat map, you see different features and based on experience and you know similar type of uh, surveys, we kind of can interpret what our magnetic signatures could be related to. When it comes to ground penetrating radar, you usually see profiles. I think in the news lately, you could see a lot of profiles and you could see even depth slices. The depth slices are created if you, when you put these five, uh, profiles together next to each other, uh, they were hopefully collected parallel to each other. And then you take all the amplitude reflections, you interpolate between the two adjacent ones and you can kind of get a similar heat map for every depth slice you can create. So essentially if you do a three-dimensional 2.5 dimensional GPR survey at the end of the day you're going to get another heat map essentially. The question is like what that's going to look like archaeologically it's it's a bit of an open question. I. I don't know anymore. I, I assumed at first that what we'd be looking at would be semi-subterranean houses like we have on the coast and in other places. From the photographs, we don't have any kind of indication whether that was the case for these 19th century constructions, if they had a semi-subterranean sort of dugout floor. There's certainly no indication of that on the surface anymore. So when these houses were abandoned and either pulled down or decayed in place over time, sometime in the subsequent years, the surface of the ground has been probably disturbed and regraded several times. We have a little bit of gravel fill that's been imported for a parking area here, and we know that there were several other buildings that were here during the 20th century that have been pulled down since. So it's difficult to say exactly what a house floor in this context looks like and how we'll be able to recognize that. Presumably we see a change in soil color. Yeah. Presumably the uh, GPR and or the magnetometry will pick up some kind of a signal that indicates at least the outlines of these structures. I would think that the one thing that is guaranteed to show up on the GPR if this is in fact the way these houses were built would be the four massive corner posts well that was the whole architectural basis for this house style right was the four big posts and then the large roof beams traveling from the front to the back of the of the building you can almost see the house depressions like I see one next to that museum just parallel to it and then I see one here with a disturbance from whatever this thing is looks like some kind of road yeah it's an old boardwalk that someone put in okay. there was it was there were some plywood boards down that now some of them have been removed by the digger and i think these were just log walls on either side of what was essentially like a boardwalk i think that's a late 20th century addition okay the disturbed area right here next to the museum is where the carving shed was which was pulled down i want to say it's only been a few years since that was pulled down it was underutilized so the decision was made to pull that down perhaps around the same time that the gas bar was redone we can see just from some of the construction activity around the new gas bar 
some of the gravel and whatnot that's been spread around. We, we have potentially some disturbance of some burial features right on the edge of the hill here, some collapsed grave houses and, and so on. So that's potentially a, an area that we wanna go take a look around as well. And can you give an example of what the pollution that you, you spoke of would be like? Oh, right, yes. Um, so pollution, when, we, when I say pollution, it's, um, I mostly mean a metallic targets underground, a pipe, a teenager, you know, drinking beer and just throw out the, uh, it's literally garbage. <laughs> you know, a can of beer or cans of beer. Although they are aluminum and they are not as, uh, they are not ferromagnetic, ferromagnetic uh, materials, they still have a little bit of effect on the magnetic field. So they are still considered pollution for magnetic surveys. But just a nail during any agriculture, you know, work, any tool that left behind. I think there were a few buildings there and I'm pretty sure it wasn't properly um, you know, um, taken apart. And there is a lot going on when humans go somewhere and do something. And magnetic survey can see them. That's fascinating. It's really, really cool. <laughs> and we had some results from that survey that we hadn't anticipated, which was pretty cool. And I think it was the, the magnetometry survey that produced um, the greatest results there. But what we ended up finding was the lower level terrace, there was a an older section of the village with what looks like remnants of longhouses. That was real eye-opener for me. And the community, I think, found that really helpful as well. That's what I'm curious about. I'm curious to know how the the nation responded to the results. Yeah, I, I wasn't there during the meeting following, but Peter was there. They kind of agreed that those anomalies that showed up on the magnetometer, there were a couple of theories going around what they might be. Uh, one of them is a potential older settlement that no one really knew about it. So they agreed that they want to keep going with, with a little bit more research on those ones, because I think that will give a lot more additional information to the nation than they, they expected. If I'm not mistaken, they kind of stopped the original development due to a burial that was that was located on site. Yes. And they were focusing the archaeological research on these magnetometer findings on the lower terrace. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what they are, because one of the disadvantages of every geophysical work, including magnetometry or, or ground penetrating radar, is the, the lack of evidence. So once once you finish the survey, you have these amazing theories and uh, you present to the client and everything is logical. You can basically go through the data and you can present the ideas logically, a subsequent story, basically. And at the end of the day, the archaeologist has to go there and uh, do proper research and give us feedback uh, that, yes, this is correct, or something went wrong along the way. <laughs> so we have to figure out what. Um, because it's something completely different. Uh, there is so many things that can uh, provide the same sort of geophysical signature. Uh, geophysical signature is basically anything that can create some sort of difference in the subsurface that we can measure, whether it's uh, with a magnetometer or whether it's a GPR, with a conductivity um, and there are other surveys too. Um, these are just the ones that um, we tend to use the most because they, um, historically speaking, they provided the best results so far all over the world. 
So yeah, there are too much ambiguity in the in the surveys itself. I find that really interesting that there's this really cool non-invasive survey that your team can do, but then it sounds like it still then needs to be ground truthed or tested uh, physically. Is that is that the right understanding? Oh, 100%, yes. <laughs> we are basically, whoever calls us, especially if it's, uh, if it's not an archaeological firm or not related to an archaeological firm, we tell them that we can do a geophysical survey and we're going to have our interpretation, which might be close to the truth or may not be. Uh, we do our best, obviously, to uh, kind, but there is a archaeological or anthropological consultant need to be in the project in order to get a better understanding of what we actually find. And to verify the findings, you definitely need to do an, a proper inspection, a proper investigation, uh, whether it's shuffle testing or, or other means. But definitely you need, because what you're going to see from us is essentially a picture, cool heat maps with location, georeference locations, and a few potential interpretation that we think is the closest to the truth. But those information are usually based on previous experience, based on the, on the process data and based on what we would expect from certain archaeological objects showing up on the geophysical data set. So it, it seems like that collaborative relationship between your team and like the archaeological field team is kind of, it, it's kind of like a match made in heaven, right? Because they, they work together so nicely, it seems. Um, it'd be really interesting to see opportunities for this type of non-invasive pre-digging investigation going on. But, but from my experience uh, with the heritage legislation in BC, that element of type of testing or type of uh, data gathering, it's not commonly seen in our permits. Yeah. Why do you think that is, Jenny? Well, it's new technology. Our legislation's always running to catch up. I think also <laughs> um, it's it's one part of the puzzle, right? Like just like Peter was saying, it's it can be a standalone data set for particular things, but it's a it's a story. It's another way of telling part of the story, and it still relies upon other pieces, which is like so much of our work, right? Like we 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 have to be more collaborative because even shovel testing is storytelling, really, um, because based upon what we find, it's up to our interpretation. And so we're kind of looking for these other elements. I think also GPR surprisingly is still new to a lot of archaeologists. I mean, it's getting a lot of traction in the news right now. It's still not something I think that's well understood, both the benefits of it and the limitations of it as well. From the contemporary cemetery on this same level and down here, um, you've got some modern graves and some early 20th century grave structures still standing. But all the space in between is just absolutely pockmarked with smaller and larger craters. Yeah, I can see them. There's uh, some large ones down here that have some stone in them. Some of them may be from where poles were pulled out as well, but there's a consistency to the shape and size of some of these uh, pits. Yeah. So, I mean, we're looking at sort of three or four hundred feet of uh, just continuous cemetery as far as I'm concerned and continuing as well on this bank over there those grave houses there's more of those little craters uh, off to the side there it's sort of hard to know where to stop and where to end
there's other stuff eroding out of here too, like lots of rock, but I found a couple pieces of uh, blue bottle glass that's probably a little bit older. And Whatever this parent material is, yeah, it breaks in all sorts of convenient ways to make it look like it's something, and then you pick it up and you go, oh yeah, never mind. <laughs> so it's going to be tricky. That's part of why it's so slow working through the stuff, because everything looks like something until you realize that that's just the weathering. Yeah. I think we actually live in a very interesting times when it comes to um, um, archaeological geophysics, because um, although GPR is not well known yet in, in BC or, or Canada, or even actually through the world, I guess, or, or part of the world, but thanks to the technological advancements in the last few decades, it's, it's really available now before only academics uh, were able to use it because it required a lot of uh, preparations, a lot of data processing, uh, specific data processing. Now, thanks to the advancements, um, it, it's a lot cheaper uh, now and uh, it's a lot easier to handle. You still require you know, specific backgrounds if you want to do certain things and it, it still helps a lot if you understand what's going on when you use a GPR. It's getting to the age when not everyone can just buy one and use it. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying, but technically, that's what's happening. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. <laughs> um, probably not not good in in many aspects, but as a tool, uh, it's definitely more and more available. And it seems more and more affordable too. It, ourselves included previously, we're like, oh gosh, GPR must be so expensive. And then we were really pleased at how we could fit it into our budget for this project. Yeah, it was, I found it uh, surprised. It was very affordable. And I think it was good value for the price, definitely. And obviously every company who's carrying out these kind of surveys, you're trying to you know, push down the prices by getting tools that can do more within a shorter period of time and all that. For us, the processing part is, and the, let's say the user friendliness is not the most important thanks to our experience. I think we are familiar enough with the, you know, collecting data, quality data that we are not looking for. What we are looking for in, a, in GPR right now is the data quality, the raw data quality that can uh, actually can be important. And there is difference between manufacturers, the amount of data we can collect in a unit time. And that's what we are trying to improve over time. So kind of talking about these improvements over time and changes over time logistically, has there been a change in the folks who are requesting your services, Peter? Like, has that changed from five years ago or was your client profile something 10 years ago and, and now it's different? Have you noticed any changes in the industry that way? Well, I started archaeological geophysics really in 2014 in Europe. I can't really say a lot about the last 10 years in BC. Mm. Overseas, we had, you know, protocols, we had legislation to do actually a geophysical investigation with archaeologists. So we had a team of 10 in particular where I was working and two of us were geophysicists, I think four or five archaeologists in the team, a few, uh, you know, geologists as well. So there were, there, there was a structure around this. Here, there is no structure yet. I like that you sound hopeful and have yet. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I am very hopeful <laughs> because uh, compared to like a few years ago when we had, you know, here a job maybe um, in January once then in August and maybe October, we get more and more regular jobs because I think people started to see the benefit of the survey or of the data that they can actually get at the end of the day. And that's, I think, where everything comes down. If there is no value in the survey, Obviously, I, I don't want anything to do with that because I don't want to pay for uh, something that doesn't give me an extra value. So as long as we can provide some value that can that the archaeologists uh, or our clients can work with, I think that kind of slowly uh, penetrates into the industry and kind of speaks for itself. And we're going to get to the point where hopefully there will be some sort of legislation or even just a general understanding of what GPR can do or magnetometer can do, general geophysics can do for archaeological work. I'm actually really interested to get your insights on that in a way I hadn't considered before we started recording is that you have this benefit of having seen a heritage system in Europe, in parts of Europe, that's quite different from what we have going on here in BC. And I wonder, as someone who's intersects with BC heritage uh, protocols, but you know, you're not an archaeologist, so you're not kind of living in it all day, every day. <laughs> Lucky. Um, I'm just, cu- <laughs> just curious, what is your take on our current state of heritage protocols in BC and I'm always curious for suggestions on how we might improve our discipline here. Personally, I think that the the whole process should follow only proper investigation of what works, what doesn't work. So before jumping into, you know, legislation and do this and do that, um, making protocols, um, every area in the whole world, I guess, is slightly different in terms of their archaeological features that in the, in the subsurface. In this case, uh, you're probably going to need a methodological experience uh, experiment, um, probably to figure out exactly what kind of methods work here. Uh, we have experience and we did surveys and we have a very small amount of view of what can be done, what works, you know, and what kind of survey parameters have to be set up prior to the survey in order to collect the good quality data. And we have a little bit of experience, but this is huge. There's so many different areas all over the place, different soil types, different landscapes, different heritage, I guess. You know, jumping into any legislation should require proper research in what kind of methods work properly. And to do that, you're probably going to have to involve universities, archaeological firms, geophysical firms together, and literally do method-based research to be particular. So you completely dodged that question. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just teasing. That's all I can say, yes. It's it's hard to it's hard to compare the two to be honest. And yeah, no. That's, all I know is that that's totally fair. Yeah, there is there is it's. I think the two things should be handled separately because mm-hmm. uh, you know there are different archaeological features over there, different archaeological features here. Although the methods that we are using are fairly similar, you still I think should handle this separately. Things mm-hmm. go in a different pace. It's just I think a different environment. 
Yeah, one, one of the things that we're challenged by, which I can see that GPR could help with is the amount of time it takes to get permits. And it's actually impeding how we can run our business because sometimes, and our clients' businesses. So sometimes we'll have projects that have, you know, a, a, a tight to reasonable timeline of let's say a year, but our permits are taking a year to get. And yeah, it's, it's fairly challenging. <laughs> And so we're limited in the type of inspections that we can do until we have those permits. But I would offer that some of the work that you do is a way that we could start that process in a non-invasive way to start gathering data while we're waiting for those permits. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. The work that Peter does, because it's non-invasive, I can't see why our legislators would require it to be done under permit. So I think that makes total sense. You never know. There could be a plot twist. (laughs) And I think Peter's doing all the right things, like reaching out to our professional association and offering presentations and information out there to the archaeological community on how they can utilize the tools that Geoscan has. And I think that's really helpful to just keep, keep doing that. Oh yeah, thanks. We we will definitely. <laughs> and from from our part, it's actually not um, even just you know promoting our company is what's important here. It's promoting right. Uh, right practices, and that's way more important because obviously there's so many jobs. So there is no uh, you know jobs shortage per se in BC when it comes to archaeological uh, research. I guess you probably know because you have a way better understanding of uh, what's going on. What I see is will, um, you know, just call GPR companies everywhere and, oh, we need this, we need this, we need this. But without proper research, proper methodology, you know, we try to be an open book and we try to encourage other companies to be doing the same. Just do it properly because once things are not done, produce quality results, quality data, then people start thinking that the technology is not working. There is nothing wrong with the technology, even if the soil is, for example, you know, not um, suitable for GPR, you can still get some data, some information from it. So it's really not about companies, it's about geophysics to be used in archaeological industry in a, in a way that it can provide useful information. It'd be so cool if yourself and other geophysicists could gather all the information, the the so-called negative returns, as well as the so-called positive returns, and have a provincial data set that, you know, could be, and you might already have this, and I'm curious if you do, where it could be tapped into be like, oh, I'm going to go work in this area. I wonder if any geophysical work has been done so I can get a profile on sediment types or a, a profile on level of pollution so to speak, air quotes, before I go in there. Does, are you guys like amassing anything in your discipline that is creating these profiles across the province? Well, we have a project that, that's going on right now. It's not related to archaeological geophysics. Uh, it's related to our other industries that we collect a lot of data and we try to categorize you know, different areas based on different uh, findings. Uh, We haven't done it with the archaeological geophysical side of our survey, just because I think we need a little bit more sample size, first of all. Second, it's so localized that the conditions are extremely localized, like even within a village, for example. At the end of the street, 
no one used it for some reason. It could be very quiet for one of the survey type, but like one street down, it could be completely different. And the geology can just uh, vary as much. Our um, database that we are working on, um, our GIS uh, experts actually working on, it's, uh, it's focused on the lower mainland and it's uh, mostly for other type of uh, jobs we do. We don't share any data, obviously, with anyone. We store them in, a, in, a, in our server. If the client requires uh, the raw data, we are providing anything that we, we have, if that's required. Otherwise, we are not even using those unless we, for example, for internal training, we use sometimes because they are so nice sometimes. You know, we just want to show how uh, a profile looks like from generally from one area but we try to, to respect uh, our client privacy, so. You know, the, the connection there, like being able to determine with some degree of confidence the name of the chief whose house it was and the clan segment that lived in that house is a really interesting and like extremely rare element of this project that we don't normally deal yeah. with. What sort of limitations does the, the the surveys have? Like, are there are there certain landscapes where it wouldn't wouldn't be useful, like boreal forest environment, versus that project that we had, which was a nice open grassy field? Te technically, every every method has different uh, limitations. We could potentially even do surveys in a light forest area, but it would be really, really difficult and probably not cost effective. So generally speaking, yes, um, the geophysical surveys require a relatively nice and open field with minimum vegetation. We try to make sure that if there is some sort of obstructions like trees and all that, we include either in the limitations or the client is aware of, or we can work around it, or the best case scenario, they can do some sort of devegetation in the area if that can be done. And what about coastal environments? Are there any limitations working near water? Generally speaking, the water table level is an issue, especially near coast. Uh, and in BC, actually, um, one of the biggest issue I can see in when doing GPR surveys is actually the geology. So there's lots of glacial till around, lots of boulders uh, carried down during the last ice age, and they can throw off an interpretation. If you think that, oh, there's a beautiful uh, feature that resembles a burial, for example, especially if it's a new age burial with, with a coffin. And it turns out that it's actually just a nice boulder. <laughs> Although it has to be like specific, you shouldn't see, for example, a void in the coffin. So, but there, there is a, there's a possibility that you can, you can misinterpret this information. Generally speaking for GPR, a dry sand is the, one of the best uh, case scenario. And there is a lot of sand here in BC. So that's kind of fortunate uh, in that case. The clay present is not the best uh, for GPR just because of the increased attenuation. But even in clay-based strata, you might be able to find useful information because if you have a relatively homogeneous clay surface that was disturbed by human activity, you might pick that up. Everything is very site-specific, so that's why it's really hard for us to tell the client whether the method will work or not, 
because even if we gather all the information from the site, uh, geolo doing geological background, ask the client about you know, the local uh, surface or condition, we still have a lot of unknown variables that we gonna know only when we get to the site. Yeah, and I, I think at one point in one of uh, your talks, you had mentioned it could be used on frozen ice, like frozen water. Yes. Oh, yes. So ice, uh, something magical happens <laughs> in the water when it, it freezes. It uh, starts to become um, resistive. And the ground penetrating radar signal is essentially just an electromagnetic signal uh, using actually the radio waves. And it can penetrate very, very deep in uh, frozen water in ice. Actually, the early GPR usage was for mostly for geology and uh, they mapped out glaciers, they mapped out, you know, ice fields and all that. Pretty sure they used already in the 50s, 60s, even probably earlier for that purpose. Interesting. I wonder if it could be used to find shipwrecks. The problem with it, that I'm pretty sure those shipwrecks are in the, in the ocean itself, in the seawater. And the seawater attenuates the GPR signal extremely. Saltwater and GPR don't. They're not friends. No, no, <laughs> they are not. They are not. Freshwater, so so. You can you can you can use it in freshwater actually, up to a certain degree. But in in seawater, that's the enemy. Yeah. So a lot of it, um, in terms of doing good work, like you said, is the processing of the data and how you process it, as well as how you interpret it. I think the most important thing is how you collect data simply the most important things you can do is to collect accurate data. You can process the data and you can put the data together, which is equally important, especially if you are looking for something that has an important spatial distribution. But besides that, like the most important thing is simply the, the data collection. You cannot visualize something that you didn't collect well, if that makes sense. Well, you just answered my, my next question, which was, what is the most important thing for people to take away from this conversation? And I think that you just answered that. You need good ingredients to make good food, I guess. That makes sense. There's a good one over here somewhere. So we're just walking up along the upper terrace bank. Heading north. Yeah, so to me this is to me this is a post hole from where a totem pole has been pulled out or fallen. That would make sense. Just based, the right based size. on the position and the size of it. Yeah. There's another there's another hole there. Some of the photographs that I've been looking at, there's a cluster of poles in this area. A couple that are sort of very close side by side that could be candidates for these two holes. But then as this continues on like this is a collapsed grave house over here mm. and we get back into that like pockmarked with little craters and stuff and that to me is getting back into graves like i think potentially it's interments of cremated remains okay are you able to do an aerial imagery as well did yes. you bring your drone yes awesome yes we just have to make sure that it's not restricted airspace but i don't think there is any airfield around and uh, when we did the survey, we just had to make sure that no third party or anyone else is around in the 30 meter radius. Okay. Yeah. Can't have people underneath? Yeah, exactly. 
and we can't go too high because the area is not huge we will be able to cover with a few pictures most likely and stitch it up together yeah travis and i thought that would be really useful to capture all the little depressions and yeah. there's just so many what's cool about this site and where we're doing uh, geophysical uh, remote sensing and where we're going to be doing hand excavation is that we're virtually guaranteed to be working within a house floor of at least one of these houses and they were stacked really tightly they were all sitting right next to each other facing the same direction and from these photographs it's a little bit difficult to say but we're talking about maybe eight or ten feet maximum in between the houses they were built really close to each other so no matter where we choose to test or excavate we're almost guaranteed to land on the interior of a house or at least the nearby exterior of a house. I was interested to know like what are your hopes for geophysics particularly as it intersects with archaeology and what kind of potential meaningful potential could it tap into that maybe it hasn't yet tapped into? So I think there are a few uh, different paths that I can see going on right now. Um, one of them is from the manufacturers of the, these geophysical instruments. They obviously try to make the equipment more you and more user-friendly, easier to use, sell them more so they can, you know, create more profit. You know, it's a business, understandably, I guess. But uh, a lot of times it doesn't necessarily follow the background, the experience, uh, the research that requires to, to do those surveys properly. So this is one path where I can see things going that people just buy equipment and they do the surveys. The other one is I can see that, uh, you know, researchers, professors, people in the legislation realize the importance of this and try to put up guidelines, those guidelines should be properly made, should be properly followed later. So that's the other one. I hope this is going to happen because then it kind of puts a filter in what can and what cannot be done. So I hope that there will be more collaboration, to be honest, between different industries. Mm -hmm. Archaeological geophysics is probably our biggest like geophysical industry in our little team, but there are different industries as well that probably could do the same or has done already. I think we are at the age of archaeological physics in BC where we are still in the kindergarten, but we're trying to be in the school and trying to get you know, to the university at some point. But that's going to take a little time, I guess, and requires from every site, archaeological, archaeological site, geophysical site, academics, uh, legislation to kind of work together. Exciting times, to be honest. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention? I think what's important to note, just because, you know, it's in the news, GPR is in the news all the time. It's really important to understand that there is more than GPR. And I love GPR. I mean, I've been working with GPR for like 13 years. And um, I, I think it's great, but um, you have to understand it's like an old car. You need to know what it can and what it cannot do and use it accordingly. But there are so other uh, so many other uh, techniques available and probably there will be a few more in the near future like they are experiencing with drone gpr drone magnetometer i don't know how good they are right now the results i i saw in different papers were not encouraging yet but definitely given the technological you know era we live in it's going to be an amazing 100 years
like you say, it'll, as the technology evolves, it's going to be really exciting and really interesting to see what comes out of it. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, by the way, when did you first hear about archaeological geophysics? If you, uh, because obviously right now there is no archaeologist in our company, but I'm curious if, is there a remote sensing course or do they mention these things or it comes later? That's a really good question. It's been a while since I was in university and I don't, I don't remember if that came up as, as a technique when I was studying, but um, Jenny might have more insight into that. Um, when I was doing my master's, which was in Europe, and this might be why there was a difference, I took a, co- a course in like all types of archaeometry. And uh, I remember writing a paper in GPR, but this was, oh gosh, this is like 16 years ago. <laughs> and that was the first time I had heard of it in the consulting world in BC. It, it hasn't always been used, but people are using it. It's just a bit of a, it's kind of like a slow burn. It seems that people are exposed to it more and more. And of course it's, it's in the news right now, which I think is that might be an entry point for discussion for folks and it gets people talking. And I hope they're also talking about the bigger issues, but I, I would like to, I would like to see it um, kind of seen as a, a tool in the toolkit more frequently. Yeah, great. I think people have different experiences with it, and uh, you know, if you if you have a bad experience, you may not try it for a, for a while, which I, I completely understand. You know, if you know why the experience was bad, maybe because of the of the soil conditions, maybe the the data collection was not done properly, or any other factors. But yeah, um, I hope more and more successful projects uh, will come uh, for everyone especially for the archaeological firms and uh, and see the benefit of remote sensing, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And I'll definitely keep you in mind, Peter, when I'm like scoping a project and trying to determine like the best methods to use. Oh, I appreciate that. Actually, we are just, I heard that we are in, uh, getting a new magnetic toy. So we will be able to get a lot bigger area than in a shorter period of time. I'm really excited about that. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. I'm glad. Yeah, and maybe we'll have you back again. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, If I'm not on the field, I'm usually available, but uh, I like to be on the field, so I'm trying to maximize my field time. (laughs) (laughs) You know what would be really awesome is if you could call in from the field uh, one day and like walk us through in real time what you're doing. That would be really amazing. We're really trying to uh, give folks kind of uh, an applied view of, of what we do in our discipline as, as well as what the folks we interact do in their, in their respective disciplines. So that'd be really cool. Oh yeah. Lovely. Yeah. hundred percent. I love talking about, you know, what we do. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much, Peter. Oh, thank Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I was like, oh my God, it's a podcast. What, what am I going to say? No, I, I just didn't know that, uh, you know, I, I can talk about uh, archaeological geophysics for over an hour. So, oh, yeah. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.